Welcome to Stageworthy. I'm Phil Rickaby, the host of this podcast. This is episode 327. Just a reminder that Stageworthy is a one-person operation, so not only do I arrange the guests and conduct the interviews, I also edit the show, I promote it, and I even created the music that you're hearing under what I'm saying right now. I also shoulder all of the financial responsibilities for keeping the show going. So if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting it. There are a few ways that you can do that. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Remember, your ratings and reviews do help new people to find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And you can also leave a tip for the show by dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. I will put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the website or in your podcast app. But one of the most important things you can do, even more important than ratings, reviews, or even financial support, is to share on social media. Even a retweet of this episode helps. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 327 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is PhilRickaby.com. This week, I'm talking to Tristan Claxton, Jamar Adams-Thompson, and Jack Copeland, the cast of Cahoots Theater's production of Stephen Elliott Jackson's Three Ordinary Men, which is inspired by the real-life story of civil rights workers Michael Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman, and their murder at the hands of the KKK during the early days of the 1964 Freedom Summer. Here's our conversation. So just to, to, to sort of jump in, uh, if if somebody would like to give me a an elevator pitch for the to to tell me what uh, Three Ordinary Men is about, so Three Ordinary Men is a story about three extraordinary men who uh, traveled to Mississippi to enfranchise black voters and register them to vote in Freedom Summer, nineteen sixty four, um, and essentially. Uh, they were going down to a freedom school, which was set up to register voters and, and teach them about their rights. Um, and that freedom school had been burned down by local KKK in the area. So the three of them go down and they want to clean up and rebuild and make sure that they're not leaving the people behind that they had seen. Um and little did they know there was uh already plans afoot by the local uh, KKK and law enforcement to ensure that these three individuals did not make it out of the area alive. So they were picked up, they were uh, brought to a jail cell um, and held till dark and then conveniently released without a phone call um, and murdered. And uh, this story really captured the, especially the the, the attention of the U.S., especially uh, the population in the North, especially the white community in the North, because two of the three men were white Northerners. And it, it, it in a uh, upsetting way, was really what it took to make people see what was happening down there. Um, 
And uh, so that's the story of these three individuals. As Tristan mentioned, there was a movie that was uh, based off this called Mississippi Burning, but it's you, it's more the aftermath. Mm. Um, the the uh, people that that murdered them um, weren't held to account, and, and and you know dealing with the corruption that existed there. Um, whereas this story is about these three young men who just wanted to make. Uh, the world a better place and, and register people to to vote as um, they should have been already uh, allowed to do. Now, did, had you guys uh, heard of uh, of these three uh, when before you started working on the show? Uh, I hadn't actually. Uh, it, I was sort of ignorant of the story and these three men. Um, I had heard of the movie Mississippi Burning. Uh, I knew they were I'd sort of heard of this term, the Mississippi three, but didn't really know what it meant. Didn't know anything about the the three men in particular. And I wasn't totally clear on the, on the repercussions of, of this story. Um, personally, I know Jamar has a very uh, different personal relationship to it. Yeah. I mean, well, the microphone's hot today. Um, naturally. Um, I guess sadly to say naturally, I found out originally by my grandmother about the story. And of course, she knew a lot more about it than even my mom and a couple of my other aunts. And I was familiar with the three names, but I didn't exactly know in depth what their story was. It was just kind of names in passing. They always came, Schwerner, Cheney, Goodman, just, you know, as a trifecta altogether. But starting this process, I got to do the historical research and dive into it. And that led me to really watch Mississippi Burning and actually see the documentary on history and, and learn more about it. Hmm. Um, I have to say, I mean, Mississippi Burning is a movie that was, uh, I mean, I'm an old man, so it was out when I was like, uh, younger and I never got around to seeing it. Um, uh, and it's one of those ones that I think I, it's sort of on the list. You should probably see this Phil. Um, movies are often embellished, right? We, the, the movie gets made and then, you know, changes are made that are better for story because history is never clean the way a story needs to be um i'm sure that this i mean again you've mentioned that nobody was ever brought to justice for the for the killing of these three men um and so it's sort of like a, an open like what what happened to these guys what really happened who did it that sort of thing um and it's kind of the idea of of you know this was a this was clearly a message by uh the clan at the time to say to everybody, don't come here, essentially. It was sending a message, a very frightening message. It didn't work. It, it, the reverse happened and people were galvanized, which is, um, which is good. It's just terrible that, that this sort of thing had to, that this, that this happened. Um, this is the first uh, show for uh, back in the theater for Cahoots. Um, and at, I think as we as we sort of go further, people into you know into the whatever post COVID theater is or whatever that is these days, um, people are returning to the theater. Have you guys been in person for any shows as actors so far, Jamar? Yeah, I had the privilege of working with Luminato Festival last summer, as well as through Pirate Life, which I know Jack is very familiar with. Uh, we put on a rendition of Moby Dick right on the. On the like right on the docks on the ships we got kids we got young adults we got locals to come through and so that was a, a big privilege to do that yeah 
Nice. How about uh, 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 Jack? Yeah, this was this is my first uh, rehearsal where we're going to have an audience in a in a rehearsal hall. I did a show in in 2019 called Patchface, and we we uh, did the entire rehearsal period uh, uh, process on Zoom. And then we met up in person in London, Ontario, and we rehearsed in the space like twice. And then we filmed the whole thing the next day. And then other than that, I did um, the Window of Opportunity Festival. So it's similar to Jamar where it was site-specific outdoors. So they had a, uh, a storefront. So I was behind the storefront performing as people walked by. Um, and uh, yeah, but this was the first time walking into a rehearsal hall, seeing other actors and the crew and so it was really special to be back there and uh it really uh, increased my appreciation for what we get to do hmm. yeah same same here i uh, i had gone well over two two and a half years without ever stepping foot inside a room with another actor i had uh sort of dabbled with some zoom theater and stuff, but uh, I really found it challenging. It's a, it's a completely different medium. And what I love about theater is that immediacy, that connection you get to make with people in a room. Uh, and it was, it was a shock coming back into, into a space with fellow actors. It was kind of like learning to walk again after being seated for two years. It was, it was uh, challenging and also very liberating and very exciting. And it's, it's, really, as Jack said, really reaffirmed what I think is special about theater. Uh, really quickly, I'm, I'm curious for you guys, what was the part that felt the rustiest about going back into a room? Like <laughs> what, what felt like the thing that you had to, to, to more that you were the, 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 that was the thinnest as far as your body memory. I see, I see Jamar has his hand up. <laughs> I laughed because we get this note to this day and we're, we're gonna figure it out don't worry we're gonna figure it out by opening projection man like on film they do everything for you but the juxtaposition from you know all those years in theater school you're training your voice and then everybody's stuck indoors you're on zoom nobody's doing voice workouts like nobody's doing what they're supposed to be doing and that was definitely something to get back into when we started this process of realizing well yeah we have to reach like the back of the theater. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> so. I mean, there isn't a mic in front of my face the whole time. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you all, do you all sort of feel the same way? That's the main, the main problem that you've been having getting back into the rehearsal. Yeah. I felt the same way. And then it's like finding the sweet spot. There's sometimes where like, like Jamar was saying, you know, we need to increase our projection. We need to reach the back of the house. Okay. That's very, very loud. Um, <laughs> trying to find where it is in the moment um, and, and, and figuring that out. So it'll be nice when we go into the space tomorrow and then we'll test that out. We'll be able to experience that. Did you guys find that, that, that your technique was rusty? I know I'm trying to, re to, to get ready to do a, a show at the, the Fundy Fringe uh, this year. And as I go through uh, uh, all of my texts as I'm learning it, um, I find that all of my voice technique has gone out the window. I get to the end of it. I'm like, why is my throat? I'm a classically trained actor. Why is my throat sore? Did you guys find the technique was, was, was rusty? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think we, we sort of uh, likened it to, to riding a bike. It's like, it's there, but like, oh, for the first couple of weeks, you're a little wobbly. <laughs> it feels a little like off the rails. So it's, it's definitely yeah. a, sort of relearning what you know. 
<laughs> yeah. I noticed uh, there was a, 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 a Cahoots posted a video of your uh, your your costume parade, oh, which was very entertaining, guys. I have to say, um, if 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 somebody hasn't seen it, I I recommend that you go to the Cahoots uh, Instagram page and take a look at that reel. Um, one thing that I noticed about the rehearsal hall is um, plexiglass on the sides. Um, is that all COVID protocol to keep like breathing contained and, and stuff like that? What's what's happened? What's the the plexiglass in the theaters in the rehearsal hall? Uh, I, I, yep. Go for it. I don't know, okay, I, I feel like, well. No, the right answer to say would be yes, but I don't want to give too much on the play away. Oh, so okay, okay. If you get yourself a ticket, <laughs> you'll discover what the uh, what the plexiglass is is for. Okay. Call it like a a window into a scene, if you might. Okay, because I my immediate thought because you know we see in in a lot of a lot of instances we're used to we're suddenly used to seeing like plexiglass everywhere and so our immediate mm-hmm. thought is that must be covid protocol but now i now i understand that's stealth uh set i understand sh- sh- i won't tell anybody. thankfully it's, it's style over over uh, necessity yeah <laughs> <laughs> um the the process of, of working on on a, on a play that is i mean it, from the description it sounds i mean the ending is heavy so i don't know what the mm. rest of it is but like it leads to something pretty heavy um the rehearsal process, I mean, obviously, when you guys doing your costume parade, you're having a bit of fun. But what has that the process been like? How do you how do you guys each process and deal with uh, uh, something that is so, so heavy uh, when you're in the rehearsal hall and without, you know, feeling the weight of it? It's it's interesting, you know, it's been it's been a really a unique rehearsal process for me in particular, or I can only speak for myself, but um, you're right. When we're, we're dealing with a show that is, that is so heavy, that is so difficult. uh, We have to ask ourselves and each other to go to places that are in incredibly scary, vulnerable, um, heavy for lack of a better term. Um, The beauty of working with these two men and Tanisha and the whole team that she has there is that we one approach that work with such integrity and such grace and such beauty. It's, it's, it's really inspiring to work with these guys, but we can also juxtapose that with so much levity and, and life and happiness. I think you, you have to, when working on work like this, you have to find ways to remember that this is a joyful experience. We are doing this because we love it. And, and these, these men also deserve, deserve the joy that, that we can bring into, into a rehearsal space. And uh, Steven's script is full of, of, wonderful levity of of comedy of 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 love it's it's incredible what he's managed to do of of a story that sh- that is so tragic and so full of heartbreak and yet he's found such such beautiful moments of of life uh, which is really really incredible jack jamar how do you how do you deal with the 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 the, the heaviness of it it's funny because usually it goes Tristan, me, and Jack anyway. So it's, it's really <laughs> in, in the play, you'll find that that two of their characters. But you know, I think Tristan really said it best. We we approach this with an integrity and a generosity. And at the end of the day, it's it's a story bigger than us, you know. And that and when you do work like that, you have to be willing to be vulnerable, regardless of how heavy the material is, but also understand that you're telling these stories because you want to bring people together. Well, period. 
and to like understand what these men did. And when you're doing a piece like this, camaraderie and compassion and cooperation is, is the soul of it. And ultimately it is a story of three chosen brothers fighting the good fight. And when, when, when you're dealing with, with a story like that about these characters, it's, yes, it's, it's tragic, but at the same time, it's, it's beautiful. And I think we brought a lot of our personalities to it. And I think everybody in the rehearsal hall, you know, unspoken and spoken understood that we, we just need, we need to be here for each other you know, um, and a collective resilience is needed for, for a project like this. And yeah, the process has been so smooth. It's been so care. Like I, I say carefree gingerly because yes, there's the stress when you're doing those kind of scenes. It's, you know, but at the same time, there's a joy in, in honoring these men and a joy in taking those kind of risks on, on stage and, and doing that kind of work. And Tanisha has done an exceptional job at, puppeteering us along the way, doing exercises that we didn't even think would be helpful and and doing even writing exercises too. And she just has had a way to to lead us and shepherd us with this. And yeah, we've been in the best of hands. Nice. Jack. Yeah, I, I echo everything that's been said. I think, you know, Cahoots, in addition from the beginning said, here are some mental health resources that um, if you're going through something, take your time. I think that from the research that we did, who these people were, uh, especially who they knew and the impact that they had, when it came time to do those difficult moments, it was just, it was there. Um, and we just had to trust it. And um, and also looking at Jamar and Tristan in that moment and going there together makes it incredibly, um, uh, not easier, but just... You, 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 you're more brave because you're going there together. Um, and, and, and like Jamar said too, you know, we want to do the story justice too. Um, and, and, but we're also in really good hands and it does end up on a hopeful note in terms of there's people that exist like this, that will do this. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's a nice, nice feeling. What was it that Mr. Rogers said? And even in the worst situations, look for the helpers. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, now, Jack, uh, I know that uh, you had the chance to speak to some of Andrew Goodman's friends. I'm curious about what that was like, but also how do you approach talking to like uh, uh, going to people who who knew this person? You're, you know, this person had a huge impact and I'm sure they answer questions all the time about their relationship with him. But like, how do you prepare and, and how do you approach like going in to talk to somebody about this also tragic uh, event? Yeah, exactly. And I was very cautious about that. So how I found that there's the Andrew Goodman Foundation, just like there's the James Cheney Foundation, which we can talk about. But the Andrew Goodman Foundation, they have historical documents about Andrew's documents when he volunteered to go to Mississippi and he had to list his emergency contacts. He needed a letter from his parents to say that he could go. Um, and then one of the emergency contacts was a friend of his. And I thought, you know, maybe this, you know, maybe I can get in touch with his friend. Turns out that they're a teacher at Long Island University. I, I found their contact info. And I, I just sort of sat with that for a little while. And I was like, I don't know. But I did reach out to them because I did more research and they were an activist and they had openly talked about Andrew's story and knew the importance of it. And even Andrew's brother, David, who's 
I think the head of the Andrew Goodman Foundation, he talks about how this is, yes, this is our family story, but this is an American story. This is for all of us. So I, I reached out and I said, I totally understand if you don't want to. And um, Andrew's friend, Ralph Engelman said, yeah, no problem at all. Um, you want to Zoom tomorrow? So then I was like, oh my gosh, okay. So, and, and I started talking with with Ralph and, and it was it was great. It was It was difficult because... I think he gets questions just like when they went missing, they were missing for 44 days before their bodies were found. And everybody wanted to know, why did they go down? Uh, what were their motives? And I think he gets a lot of questions about that, but I was also interested. I said, what was, what was he like growing up? What kind of music did you guys listen to? And, and it was really beautiful because he got to talk about his friend um, and, and to look at someone in the eyes that looked at Andy in the eyes just made it super close and it made everything just, just there when it came time to do the work. Um, and then he said, you know what, because of the pandemic, they, they all went to a small private school in New York. We all reconnected. So I can put you in touch with a couple other of, of our classmates. And, and he did. And, and it's just been wonderful, not only to, to, just get to know them, but hopefully that they can also make two of them live in Toronto can, can hopefully come to the performance. That's awesome. That's great. Um, you, know, you mentioned the foundation, so we should probably talk about, about the, the foundations for Schwarmer, Cheney and Goodman. Um, I know, uh, Jamar, you are, you, there, you're something you're really, you're passionate about, about the, the foundations. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about, the foundations and, and, and what they do? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I'll start with James, of course. Um, but the, the James Earl Cheney foundation founded by his young brother, Ben, um, which I just have to say off the hop must've taken amazing amount of courage to keep fighting that fight. Um, yeah. So what they do basically is they still push the, the envelope and the important narrative of voting and just getting black folk, to where they need to be down in Mississippi, but as well as majority of the South, you know, helping out with the youth education at the end of the day is something that's key with both organizations between them and the Andrew Goodman Foundation, which I know does a lot of programs to instill leadership. And I guess like when I was in high school, I, I was, I did some prefect kind of leadership courses and things like that. And that's basically how they've been setting up their, their youth. And they have, you know, seminars, like, one might say TED Talk style, but that's basically what they're they're doing. They're raising leaders and they take their nonprofit donations to to keep educating people on the importance of voting, the importance of cooperation and community and actively building that. Not just saying, hey, this is what should happen, but here are steps you can take to go do that and giving youth the tools to move forward because of course it's a lot easier to teach children and have that passed down as opposed to getting all these busy adults right on the one. But yeah, that's seems to be their focus. You mentioned, you mentioned the, the voting and having just come out of uh, an election in Ontario with the lowest voter turnout in history. Mm. Um, I wonder about, you know, what are your thoughts on the importance of, of voting? Have you guys, here's a question. Do you guys always vote? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Great. Yeah. I, I was for me, it's always shocking when I when because I've never missed an election, provincial, municipal, federal. I've never not voted. And I know people they're like, eh, I didn't vote. And to me, that's that's such a big deal to 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 not exercise your civic duty, your franchise, all of that stuff. Um, 
how do you guys feel about about the importance of voting and 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 what are your thoughts on this 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 the the voter turnout from this last election and and how it relates to this show with in which is really about the right to vote i'll take i'll, I'll take a stab at it if you want um sure Man, Phil, I was so livid when I saw that. And and I realized, you know, maybe, I mean, you turn 18 and then you can start to vote. So when you're in high school, you're like, okay, I know this is important. University, I was like, no, this is important. This is affecting me directly. I really need to care about this. But there was a different level of, I want to, oh, I almost want to say zealousness. There was a, a deeper passion there. I went to a lovely little school close to my to my house where I got to vote with my mom. And that's just our thing. That's what we do. We go together, you know, and we go vote. And I couldn't help but feel this immense weight on my shoulders. I was like, this is the care. This is what James was trying to do. Hmm. Walk in there with his mom and vote. And ironically, we're in a church, like a school and church grounds. And I was like, why is it so empty? And I was trying to figure out that from the one. And I think it is it's so disheartening and very socially destructive, I would say, to see that all these all these people, especially in this pandemic, have just kind of given up or they feel like there's a, I think there was, what was the term? This is the, the apathy election they were mm-hmm. saying, yeah, just yeah. A, a, a lack of care because they felt no matter who they voted for, it, it was, it was going to be indifferent. But the principle of actually just going out there and, and speaking your piece and, and doing the democracy a justice and the fact that that disappeared even in Canada just just for a brief moment it was hard to see man I'm not gonna lie it, it really made me think so deeply about the show and be like this is we're, we're, we're so privileged here like you you really need to get out of your comfort zone no matter no matter what you're feeling whatever party that you support but actually go vote like actually just the act of it is the principle itself and yeah yeah, I can't help but think about the fact that, like, you know, as in this play, like people died, though these men died so that other people could vote. And here we are not doing the simplest thing. I was in and out in 30 seconds, yeah. literally 30 seconds mm-hmm. for to vote. And there was no line. And in fact, when I walked by in the evening, there's still no line. And and that worried me. It worries me when when people are not not doing that and i i wonder like i don't know about the i don't know if it's pandemic related i i don't know what it is but it seems that that a lot of people just assume it's going to happen without them mm-hmm. it's a sad a sad thing jack tristan what are your thoughts on let's talk politics no let's what do you talk, <laughs> what, let's like what do you what did you think of the uh, of the outcome of the vote and how it relates to to this show yeah it's uh it's deeply concerning for sure it is the single most important act that we as citizens of this country can do and i think it it speaks to an alarming as as jamar said an alarming sense of apathy throughout this country that we just don't seem to care we do not seem to be bothered by it or if we are we're not doing anything about it um I, I don't I, I I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe this is, you know, some sort of a, a way to send a message to leaderships from all parties that we are not happy with the status quo. Something isn't working, clearly. You know, most of this province did not feel confident enough to take part in our civic duty. And that is that's terrifying and that's huge. And that should be something that uh, that should be addressed. Whatever the problem is, it needs to be addressed. Yeah. I'll definitely agree with that. I think, you know, uh, I know, you know, it's, it's hard 
to get behind. I think we had some leaders of opposition parties that we, it was hard to get behind. And Absolutely. I know we don't vote for the leader of the party, but we kind of do, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we kind of yeah. do. And so you end up with like, if I'm not enthusiastic about the leader, how am I enthusiastic about the local candidate? Unless you have exactly. a really strong local candidate, right? Yeah, then it becomes super mm-hmm. easy. But um, a lot of places don't. So you don't show up and then the incumbent stays in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like like you were saying, um, and also you were saying, Jamara, in terms of the principle um, mm-hmm. that it sets in terms of it's an opportunity that you have to participate that a lot of people don't and a lot of people haven't. So again, it's the principle. It doesn't matter uh, you know, where you fall on, on the political spectrum, but you have that chance. So it's the principle that you, you can use it. And if you don't, um, that, that's worrisome in terms of, oh, well, um, you know, then, then if you don't use that right to vote, um, it sort of sends a message that I'm not engaged. Um, and that, and that other people can make decisions without your input, which, Again, like Tristan was saying, that the entire democratic experiment, and that's also what this play is kind of about, like it doesn't work. It's an experiment. It's a work in process um, that over time sometimes can be taken for granted. Um, so, again, that's why it's a very timely story um, that that we hope will reinvigorate people's uh, appreciation for, for what they have and, and continue to get involved. Yeah, sort of reminds me of the old quote, what's uh, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And it's it's yep. scary when most of this province has decided to do nothing. Yes. Which yes. is which is not good, especially with so much actually at stake, as so, yeah. especially with yes. so much actually yeah. at stake. It's 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 insane. Um, I want to move over into something a little bit uh, uh, lighter. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I like to do on this show is to talk to people about their theater origin stories i I love to know like what is it that that drew you to theater that made you want to do this how did you get from there to here um so please if each of you i'll start with uh, with tristan and then we'll go to uh, jamar and then jack uh, just to to to, uh slightly uh spice up your usual order um (laughs) if as you as you described it um if you could uh, let me know uh, like what's, what's, what is your theater origin story? My theater origin story. I mean, it's, it's the pretty typical story. I was, a a, a somewhat troublesome youth, uh, clearly, clearly a fan of, of getting attention, a bit of a class clown and my, uh, my parents bless their hearts sort of, okay, we, he's got this trait. He's got this need to be, to be seen, to be loud, to be a, a, a participant in everything around him. How do we focus this as something productive and, and and worthwhile so they uh you know they threw me into a little bit of everything music art drama dance and i uh, i just kept eating it up eating it up eating it up and i couldn't get enough and uh i was lucky enough to go to a high school in uh, newmarket ontario just a bit north of toronto here where i had uh, an incredible arts program and wonderful teachers uh who really opened up a world to me that i didn't know existed and sort of showed me that like this could be more than just something fun it can be uh, a, a tool for for change, for growth, for it can be so much more, and and also it can be a career, which was a neat revelation in grade nine of like, wait, you can do this for a living? What? So, um, yeah, I just carried on with that. Went to went to university here in uh, here in Ontario, down in Windsor. Shout out to Jamar, my friend there, um, and then uh, just continued to eat things up. 
uh, and then uh, went off to England, got a master's degree in uh, classical theater out there because I was really drawn to Shakespeare and the classics. And it's just sort of uh, it's sort of been a nonstop ride ever since I was young. It was just there was never any doubt, no question. I, I knew what I wanted and what I felt like I was put here to do. And uh, so I keep on <laughs> smashing my head against that wall. <laughs> question for you. Question for you. you mentioned like like, you know, you learned in grade nine that it was something you could do like for a living. Yeah. Um, is that the path that your parents uh, had 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 wanted for you? Did they have a different path in mind? Sometimes I always find there there sometimes I find people have to sort of like come out as a professional actor to their families, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I do, yeah. I, I was I was very lucky in that my parents um from day one always said that no matter what I wanted to do, they would support me. As long as there was passion, they would support it. Uh which is incredibly lucky and incredibly rare. And I was I I am never never loses uh, i've never lost that that realization that i'm an incredibly lucky individual to have come from that sort of family my my parents were both very artistic themselves love to sing love to play music so i grew up in a very uh, artistic household which which is fortunate nice jamar what's your theater origin story uh, yes how did it start for me it it was through voice i was similar to tristan Man, my brother and I, we were all over the TV watching cartoons every, man, between like kindergarten to grade three, no homework was done. I was watching SpongeBob, I was watching Danny Fan, like all of it, all of it, Nickelodeon, the whole thing. And my parents kind of caught on early. They're like, okay, he likes to make voices. He likes to take his, his action figures in and do things. Like he really likes storytelling. I, I forget what I was watching. It was Pursuit of Happiness. I remember when that movie dropped, that did everything for me. Watching, watching that and being like, whoa, this is a hard-hitting story. But I, I like I like the emotion from that. First, like I, I don't like crying, but I enjoy I enjoy what this is sending me, even though I don't understand it. And I think I was watching Denzel in something. I don't know when if it was Training Day back in the day or something, but <laughs> it was like one of my first main Denzel movies. And of course, it was my mom was watching it first, and I decided to sit down next to her. And I was like, what are they doing? I was like, what, what is this whole thing? She's like, well, they're acting. I was like, oh, okay. She's like, yeah, like you can, you can get paid for that. And I was like, this is a core memory right here. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That was, that, that changed everything for me. And I had some of the most amazing teachers in my middle school and my elementary school say, you should join the school play, join the musical. Like every time you do creative writing, we, we love the way you speak. Like you, you have a voice for this, go do this thing. And I was like, all right, everybody's telling me I should be in the arts, but I don't know, being a lawyer might make more money. Being a wildlife conservationist might be better. Apparently I wanted to be a pastor at one point. I, everything but acting. I was like, ah, but I should probably make some money, right? And I went to high school and I chose my high school based on just on the grapevine. I heard that they had a phenomenal drama professor there who turned out went to the University of Windsor, which is where I would our hero here would end up. And uh, yeah, he he saw me do a, this little monologue. I think it was from, was it Arthur O'Shaughnessy? It's like, we are the music makers. We are the dreamers of dreams. It kind of goes with that kind of start. He gets up in front of the class. He's just like, we have an actor. And I was like, yeah, and I got, and I got to like, I, I think I got to pursue this thing now. And he was just very supportive of that. I went to do my auditions and, you know, got into Windsor. And I was like, this is definitely what I want to do. I want to be a storyteller. I want a platform for people to listen to so I can just 
have that influence to bring good about in the world. I had so many things that I wanted to fix, be it the environment, you know, that religious background of like talking to people, healing people. And, and my favorite, my favorite movie was Pursuit of Happiness. Clearly there's some altruism there, right? There's some, some feel good stuff there that I didn't really know until I realized the influence that you can make from being an actor and just the essence of storytelling. And that's, that's basically where I came through and that's what I'd like to do. As I'm curious about, cause you mentioned like, you know, lawyer, this sort of thing to make money, but you also mentioned pastor, which is not something that most people mention. Um, as, as a preacher's kid myself, um, hey. I'm wondering if it, do you, did you have a pastor in the family and is that what made you think of that? Cause it's not something that people often go like, mm. I think that's what I'm going to do. Well, man, coming from two immigrant parents from Jamaica, we were always in church. <laughs> I had haircut short, dressed to the nines. I missed out on a lot of Saturdays. They had to drag me away. New episodes of SpongeBob, I couldn't see right off the hop. <laughs> so, yeah, we it's a very religious um, background in Jamaica. A lot of them are Seventh-day Adventists. So mm. ev everyone's a pastor in the family. Everybody's in choir. Everybody's in Sunday school. Like, both my parents were heavily involved in their churches both in Toronto and back home. Mm. So it's, it's a big part of my, my upbringing. And I was re I don't recall saying I wanted to be a pastor, but at some point when I was young, they said this was the case, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. My dad was, it was an Anglican priest and the, the church that he was in Saturdays, one, there was like this, this complex of three churches in the Baptist church. Essentially there was a seventh day Adventist church that used the Baptist church on the, on the Saturdays. And we would like, if there was like some kind of event, I would just be like, they're in there a long time. <laughs> that is, that's a lot of church. And, you know, I'm a preacher's <laughs> kid. So part of it is like, eh. but you know, it, like that's a long time. I'm, I'm going to be real. Yeah. If you've ever been to black churches, bro, it's a, it's a whole day affair. <laughs> Honestly. Right. Um. Did, did, you know, you with all of these other things that you wanted to do, did you have to come out as an actor? Did your family uh, 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 want that for you or did they fight that or? Uh, similar to Tristan, they they just cared that I was passionate about something. And, you know, they never missed a show, which is so rare. And that's that's so lucky to have that. And both of them. I mean, my mom works for the city. Actually, no, they both work for the city. My dad was always doing like truck driving internationally. So very different stuff. I mean, he was also very educated too. So it's just like, at one point he wanted to be a lawyer. So I think that's where I got that from him. But they're just like, oh, you want to be an actor? They're like, yeah, go for it. And I was like, well, that wasn't that hard. All my friends are getting reamed out for not being doctors <laughs> and like engineers. I was like, like both my best friends, one's in med school, one just finished up engineering. And I'm just like, <laughs> y'all want to come to my show? <laughs> so, but no, my, my parents were very, very supportive of that, which was a huge blessing. And that that helped me gain the confidence to keep going for it. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Uh, Jack, what's, what is your theater origin story? Well, I think, uh, as you said, Jamar, there's certain memories that, that like are foundational. So I think in grade three, we had a school concert. Um, and I was also very gregarious and like was told to, to, to maybe sit in the timeout chair sometimes for <laughs> drawing a lot of attention, but then they had this presentation. They're like, you can, you can play. And I remember I was standing on the, the pavement outside of the gymnasium um, and I got so excited and I almost had this moment where it went like, uh oh, and I was like, I was kind of hooked from that moment on. I was like, this is this is such a nice feeling, um, but at the same time, terrifying. And then 
I also weirdly, when I was young, had a, a I really enjoyed the movie The Godfather. And then everything kind of came out of that because then I, I found out, I was like, oh, and then I saw a photo of Marlon Brando and I was like, oh, wait, he wasn't that old. What was he doing? How did he do that? And then, and then I learned about uh, Al Pacino and then like the, uh, the group theater and Stella Adler. And so I was reading books, but there wasn't like a lot that I knew of in terms of theater growing up. Like we did presentations and things like that. Um, and it wasn't until till when I went to university at Western. Uh, and then I joined the theater clubs there because when I was reading these biographies of these actors that I loved, a lot of them, when they, especially in the States where in college joined the theater clubs. So that's kind of how I started. And then, you know, reading those biographies, some of them went to theater school and then I went to theater school. So it's sort of just finding one step at a time. And, uh, and now we're here. But you started, you went to, to you studied business administration before theater. So what was it? What was the, 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 like, why did you choose that? And was that like a denial of theater or was that something else? Um, well, you know, that was also like a family plan um, that, that was agreed upon. But uh, the way that the program worked was that you did two years on main campus. And then if you hit your prerequisites then you went to the business school for two years. So then I chose what I wanted to do for the first two years, which was political science. And I didn't honestly didn't really know what that was. It sounded super legit, um, like two strong words, political science. Um, but then when I was there, I got to choose my electives. And then I had these this amazing English teacher at Western MJ Kidney. And then just, again, these are all these happenstance things. She was like, you know what? Cause I did the theater play. She said, next year, we're going to start the theater studies program. So would you like to be in the first class? So that was, we didn't really act, but we just studied plays and we just broke down plays and read plays. Um, so then once I'm in there and everything's going well, it's like, okay, now it's time to go to business school, um, which was great. I really enjoyed it. Actually, I went to the same business school as Simu Liu. Um, who's now in, in the Marvel universe. Yeah. Um, but while I was there, I still did the plays on main campus and uh, I, I had a really good time and everybody, you know, from my, from my class would come to the plays. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been super helpful, but then I, I did want to learn a technique. I was sort of going off like by the, by the seat of my pants and like things that I read in books. Um, so that's why I was like, I want to, I want to study this. What school did you end up going to or did you stay at Western? I went to George Brown Theater School. Um, so I graduated there in 2020. Um, they came in our last week um, this, when there was rumblings of the pandemic. Uh-huh. Um, and then on the Monday, somebody said, like, do you think maybe our shows will get canceled? And I was like, nah, I don't think so. And then Friday, they came in and said, you got to get out of the building. You graduated. Congrats. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> what a what a way to graduate! Uh, by the way, I'm a I'm a I'm a George Brown uh, hey. Theater School graduate myself, uh, class of 1990. Um, <laughs> 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 um, I guess I, I don't need to like worry about saying it. I didn't say 1990 something, so like I don't know what I was trying to do hiding the last number. Um, the 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 business administration thing is is interesting. Have you been able? Have you used? Any of the things that you know from business administration in your actor's life? Um, yeah, well, when I first moved to Toronto, I didn't really know any of the theaters or the network there. Um, like Jamar, I grew up in Mississauga. So then when I came to Toronto, like I knew of like Mervish. That was like, I knew of that. But then I, 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 I like literally would walk around and then I went to these, this theater 
And I wanted to get to know them. So I started volunteering. So I said, hey, you know, these are the sort of things that we did in terms of like balance sheets, ticket data stuff, process stuff. I, like I'm, I, I have some free time in the summer. Um, I'd be happy to help you out. So then I kind of like would find out about their events and go there. And then ultimately too, you know, understanding budgeting and how to make your cash flows work and savings and things like that, like all very helpful things um, to, uh, to, to keep you ready and available to, to, to find the work and seek the work. Nice. Nice. Tristan, I know that when you're not acting, you are a, a film grip with IATSE. Indeed. Back, back when I was in theater school, they would have told us not to do that. And they would have told us not to do that because I think they were afraid that if somebody knew that we could do something other than acting, we would be in too much demand for that thing and nobody would ever let us do that other thing. Um, I know that is no longer really the case. I know too many people who are multi-hyphenates as far as their career. Um, how have how have you found being on the, the technical side uh, and the the acting side and and how how do those relate or what is the the tension between the two? Um, I, I found it to be in, incredible. Uh, there's a there's a beautiful synergy between both. Um, I mean, uh, I started gripping, uh, I guess, about two years ago or so, sort of during the pandemic when there wasn't any live theater happening. I used to work as a carpenter as a Joe job when I was acting in the city. So I was like, well, you know, this is sort of a merging of my two two skill sets. Uh, so I jumped in there and it's been, it's been phenomenal. Uh, specifically, I've started really gravitating towards dolly gripping, which is sort of the, the, the choreography and movement side of the camera. And I find that those, that my skills as an actor, my understanding of storytelling uh, really fits together with that. Um, in order to, in my experience, in order to be a, a, a good dolly grip from what I've seen from the, the pros out there, you have to have that innate artistic sense it's more than just a technician there is such creativity in that of of feeling the shot feeling the moment what what does this story what does this character need in terms of movement intensity subtlety um so so i find that there is a a huge amount of overlap um that said both careers are incredibly time demanding um so it is it is difficult to juggle both um Thankfully, I've been with crews that have been kind enough to sort of let me spread my wings when a show comes along and I go off and they're supportive. And then I'm able to sort of jump back on with them and, and continue continue shooting. So it's been it's been a unique challenge. And of course, just just being on a film set and watching other actors work is is just an invaluable thing in, in any in any situation. So, you know, getting to see some of the some of the big dogs, some of my idols. Um, I was working on a show with Anson Mount just before I started this one and just watching his his process and his incredible professionalism and, and focus is just, okay, that's gotta write that down. <laughs> as a as a nerd, I'm saying to myself, like, I wonder what show that was as I roll yeah. my eyes. Um, <laughs> one of one of two nerd shows shooting in Toronto right now. Yep. Um, <laughs> One of the things that's that's interesting, you mentioned like getting into that on the uh, during the pandemic. Um, what other things, uh, 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 Jack and Jamar? What what kind of things did you guys start doing or take on during the pandemic that were uh, either new to you or or things that you were able to pursue uh, that you hadn't before? Right, we'll keep with the order. Son of a gun. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> see what I mean? Um, I 
started learning some languages. And so currently I'm on French and Japanese. Yeah, it's the biggest headache trying to switch back and forth, but <laughs> it's definitely worth it. But yeah, I started getting into like more linguistics and I started writing more, especially after I had just finished my undergrad. So like poetry, slam poetry, like rap and just like things like that. So yeah, that's what I got into. Now, was writing something that you did pre-pandemic or is was this something that you took up during the pandemic? Uh, that actually started, well, started in school. We had this course called um, Character Study. We're based, and Tristan knows what I'm talking about. Basically, you write and direct your own 20-minute piece. And you do these interviews with real people of, like, of your choice to like get inspiration for your character or characters. And yeah, you just... You, you write, basically, and they kind of teach you how to write your own play. And I love that experience. I didn't think that writing was something that I would be drawn to. But I remember, again, all those cartoons, I was like, I should write one of these days. Or like, write, write myself a good, um, a good screenplay. So I just started writing soon after that. And I've been in and out, but keeping that up over the course of the pandemic. But it started right in my final year. Nice. Jack, how about you? Um, yeah. So when the pandemic started, I was serving at that time, but then that went away. Um, and then I got a gig writing described video for movies and TV shows. So basically, you know, if there's any action, then you, you write that out because sort of like the stage directions. So that was a great gig. Um, and I think it was similar for a lot of people that I know, like the sort of a lot of us that had to pause It's sort of what do we want to do? Um, so me and two friends, we started a production company and we produced a music video. Um, and then similarly, I, I wanted to write. It was actually at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was reading a Shakespeare biography and it was weird because it was like I'd watch the news and it was like all the theaters are shutting down uh, for the next little while. And then I'm reading the Shakespeare thing before bed and it's like and then that began the shutting down of the theaters for the next little while. And then it was like so bill decided to write king lear and i was like oh maybe i should do that so I, then i tried uh so i started writing i started re uh, reading books on screenplay writing and luckily i had some good friends from um the theater studies program at western that became poets and playwrights and, and they invited me to writers groups um and that was just a great thing like an anchor of an hour a day sitting down and writing a, a screenplay um so other than that, yeah, lots of gigs, lots of uh, spinning plates, keeping those up. Um, and uh, now we're here. You mentioned writing for an hour a day, and I think that's that's so important because sometimes you can get caught up in, oh, it's, like, it's an hour. It's not much at all, but it's more than nothing. If you could, If all you could fit in is an hour a day, you're doing pretty well, really. And after a while, you'll have a thing. Um, did you like with all the things that you were juggling, did you find it hard to find that hour or was it just like in your calendar and it was sacrosanct and, and there? Yeah. Well, that was at the beginning of the pandemic was building a routine for myself. So like I have my agenda, I think all three of us have agendas and we were all like admiring each other's agendas. Um, but I, I would need to do like a certain amount every day. And like, even if I just sat down for a half hour and, and checked in with stuff, I would like to do more, but especially, you know, with auditions or you don't know what your day is going to look like, but having that hour 
um, like you said, over time, that's going to build up. And sometimes you need to digest. And because and, I think at the beginning, I said, okay, today, let's write King Lear. But I was like, no, it's, this, is a, this is a day-by-day process. And same with the preparation for this, this play was I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do like, you know what, today is where I'm going to do all my research. I said, I'm going to do a little bit every day. And then um, over time, by the time I look back on everything that I had from such varied sources and different headspaces that I was at over the two-year period, I was like, wow, uh, I have a pretty varied understanding of this. So um, yeah, breaking it down into bite-sized pieces and not trying to eat it whole. Nice, nice. Um, Jamar, you mentioned... Uh, about the fact you mentioned that you love reading and that you spend a lot of time at Indigo or used bookstores. I have two questions. What's your favorite used bookstore? Second, um, do you have a go-to genre for reading? Oh boy. Oh, well, the answers are, are yes. The answers are yes. <laughs> uh, I think I just want to make sure I get the, the name right. I have it in my calendar. Um, so okay, I think it, it's it, it's okay. So it's in downtown Detroit on Lafayette Boulevard. I think it's off of John and King. I I'm gonna have to find the name for you at some point, but it's it's so run down that it's, it's one of those ones where it's like the signs, like one of those broken pieces of planks, like you, you don't even know where you're really at. But you go in there, and it's like this ocean of shelves, and mm. it's just like I'm talking those huge tomes that you'd see out of like a Tolkien novel. Like it's just it's gorgeous. Detroit's great. I will always hype that city up. So if you can find that spot, <laughs> go there. Um, but that's definitely up there. Um, and there's com- some comic book stores in Kensington that I'm a big fan of as well. Um, pretty much all of them. I just usually hop back and forth. Um, but my favorite genre of reading is tied between, of course, fantasy and Lovecraftian horror. Mm. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Lovecraft, actually. Nice. But yeah. Um, which considering that Lovecraft is terrible racist, it's hard to, (laughs) it's like, (laughs) it's like you're reading it and it's like, holy shit, he said that like, and then you have, and then you have something as brilliant as the, the series Lovecraft country. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Um, I Lovecraft country was a book before it was a series. Had you read that book before the series or actually no, I, okay. I was, I think it was around halfway the first novel that it left me for, for like ages. And I saw the show and I was like, yes, Jonathan majors. That's my guy. So I, I was, I was every, every episode I was on that series very much loved it, but I do think it's time to go back to the books for sure. 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 And of course, Jonathan majors, he's King of the Conqueror. So you can't go wrong. Um, exactly. You said it best, Phil. You said it yeah. best. You, you Thank also, you, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, uh, comic books. Um, I don't know about the other guys. I don't know. If, I don't know how many nerds we have on the call. <laughs> Um, oh yeah awesome awesome all right all right guys so we're gonna we're gonna leave theater for a second just for a second i don't get to nerd out as often as i would like these days so um did you growing up did you have a favorite comic book or character and is it still the same now jamar jamar has like all of his hands in the air this is this 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 is like literally half of my spirit um (laughs) spider-man and, and, not, and before I even knew who Miles Morales was, it, like it was Peter for like at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then of course they realized, yo, there's a black Spider-Man. I was like, yo, how did I not know this from birth? <laughs> so Spider-Man is definitely number one. Um, I'm a huge fan of Black Bolt because I love characters that use sound. I mean, Batman, duh, um, <laughs> of course. But Moon Knight, I actually really started to get into before I went into university. And 
I'm glad I did because it's huge now. Thanks yeah. to Oscar Isaac. But yeah. yeah, those are those are some of my characters. Awesome. And I'm always a fan of X-Men as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, other uh, Tristan, Tristan, Jack, what about you? Yeah, uh, not so unique to myself. It was it was always Peter Parker. It was Spider-Man for sure. I mean, I, I, I imagine it's a lot for uh, similar for a lot of, you know, more artistic children growing up we were probably not the coolest not the biggest not the toughest in the school so to have this character who was you know smart quirky kind of downtrodden but could still find this incredible spirit and and such power within that was just oh god how could you not love it as a kid and just like i want to be you i want to swing around the city on on ropes and get the girl (laughs) awesome awesome jack I didn't read a lot of comics growing up, but I read the Bone series. I loved reading the Bone series. And then mm. in, ter- in terms of my favorite superhero, I always loved the Incredible Hulk. I mean, just... you can't really go wrong with, with comic book Hulk. There have been a lot of wrongs in comic book Hulk move in Hulk movies, but like you can't really go wrong with comic book Hulk. There's more depth than they've been able to put into a movie. So, And of course, we wouldn't have a character like Wolverine without the Hulk. Thank you for saying it. Thank you for doing your research. Thank you. <laughs> doing, my, doing my research. This is my life. <laughs> it's good to see you, brother. That's, you. Probably, that's probably the nerdiest I have allowed myself to get on this podcast. So uh, thanks, guys, for, for bringing that out. Um, I've had a lot of fun talking to you guys. Uh, thanks so much for making the time on such short notice. And thanks for your patience and putting this together today. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for having us. It's been a joy. Thank you. This has been amazing. Thank you. Yeah, nice to meet you, Phil, and all the best. <laughs>